Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Thank you, choir, for your ministry, and uh, we want to welcome all of you here at Central Campus, as, uh, as well as those of you who are joining us online, and um, also those of you who are meeting together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, in um, Bridgeland, and also in South Calgary, and in the Crowfoot Theaters in Northwest Calgary. So we're in a series we're calling The Pursuit of Simplicity. And in this message, we're going to focus on yet another factor that adds a lot of anxiety and uh, complexity to our lives, and that is in our finances. Research tells us that nothing causes more anxiety and conflict in marriages and families than this issue of money. While some people fret over how they're going to make ends meet and pay the bills, there are others who lose sleep agonizing over where they're going to invest all the money that they have. Financial expert Dr. Larry Burkett says the major cause of divorce today is in the area of finances. In fact, he says when you peel back all of the surface issues and get to the root of the problem, the research tells us that uh, 80% of divorces can be attributed to finances in one way or another with easy credit available, many couples are lured into purchasing in about three years what it took their parents um, 30 years to accumulate. And over time, the pressure of escalating and overdue bills uh, begins to erode away at their relationship. And then accusations start flying. Like, you don't make enough. You spend too much. And then an unexpected loss of employment. An unexpected major bill can cause one or both to snap, and sadly, another marriage bites the dust. But financial bondage isn't solely a marriage issue. It is a problem that lives, um, uh, that is a living reality in the lives of many people today. And this issue is reaching epidemic levels. Researchers tell us that something like 80% of people in North America owe more than they own. Not too long ago, Time Magazine reported that on average for every $1,000 that we make, we put $1,300 on our credit card. Hello? Is it any wonder why so many people are stressed out these days? Well, our God doesn't want us to live this way. And if you're feeling overwhelmed with your financial situation, or if you're living in constant fear of, of losing the money that you already have, then I'm sure you also don't want to live this way. We all long to simplify our lives by simplifying our finances. The question is, how do we do that? Well, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus invites us to come to him. To come to him with our burdens, including our financial stress. And he promises that if we will submit to him, if we will uh, come and learn from him, we will find rest for our souls. 
And in Matthew 6, Jesus gives several principles that are foundational to simplifying our finances. If we understand and embrace these principles, it will transform not only our finances, but also our lives. So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading a part of this passage together, beginning in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask, Lord, that as we now learn from you, as you have invited us to, that you would focus our minds, Lord, you would soften our hearts, You would give us the courage to do whatever it is you call us to do. For I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in the passage that we just read together, Jesus gives us several principles that are foundational to living simply and to simplifying our finances. And we're going to look at just a couple of those principles in this message. The first principle for simplifying your finances is to put your trust in God and God alone. The key verse in the passage that we read together is, verse, is found in verse 24. And this is what verse 24 says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, in this verse, Jesus wants us to understand that when it comes to to, uh, what we have, when it comes to what we're pursuing in life, we must make a choice. We can put our trust in God, or we can put our trust in money. We all serve and worship some sort of God, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Even if we think that God That God is ourselves. That we're the center of the universe, as it were. But Jesus is saying here, you can only serve one God at a time because our hearts have room for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing devotion. He's saying, if you want financial freedom and simplicity in your life and want to experience all that God has for you, then you need to make up your mind about who you're going to trust, who you're going to give your life to. 
You have to make a choice. The Apostle Paul made a choice. In Philippians 1.21, he said, For to me to live is Christ. Even though his life was full of hardships and challenges, he lived a life of simplicity because he had one focus. He had one overarching passion. One voice that he was dialed into. One master that he was giving his life to. And you see, consequently, his priorities, his values, his relationships, and his finances were all impacted through his relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go over to chapter 4 of Philippians, to verse 12, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Paul attributes his learning contentment. He attributes his learning how to live simply, whether in times of plenty or in times of need, to his relationship with Jesus. Which brings me to the question that I've raised in every message in this series. For you to live is what? Are you clear about who or what you're giving your life to? Who or what is the sole object of your trust or your worship? Recently someone said to me, that question haunts me. And I said, it should haunt us. Because there isn't a more important question to address in this life. And if we ignore it, we do so at our own peril. I keep bringing it up because how you answer that question is going to impact everything in your life. It's going to impact the mission you have in life and your priorities. It's going to impact your values and your lifestyle. It's going to impact your relationships as we talked about last time. It's going to impact your eternal trajectory. And yes, it's going to impact your finances your attitude toward money, your concerns about money, and what you do with your money. If we're going to live a life of simplicity and simplify our finances, we need to come to grips with the question, in whom do I really trust? Now let me explain a little more why this is so important. In verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, if you want to know where your heart is really at, if you want to know what God you're really trusting in, then look at what it is you really treasure. And Kevin Miller says that cultural anthropologists tell us that North Americans are not really obsessed with money itself, which I found really interesting. He says, no, they're not really obsessed with money itself. What we're really interested in is what money communicates to those around us. In our culture, they say, more money proves that I'm significant, that I'm competent, that I'm successful. And so here's the thing. If your treasure is to be seen as important and as successful by others, 
then your heart, your passions, and yes, your money is going to go in that direction. It's going to go in the direction of living in a certain kind of home, vacationing at certain places, driving a certain car, dressing a certain way. If your treasure or the God in whom you trust is to be seen as successful in the eyes of other people and money is one of the key ways that our culture measures success, then can you see how this totally affects how you see money and how you use money? Can you see why some of us are never satisfied with what we have? Why we're always wanting more things? More money? Can you see why, as Jesus goes on to say in verse 25 here, that we worry about things we don't have? We worry about not having enough? Why we hoard money and possessions? Why we fear losing our money? Can you see why a record number of people go into debt these days? I mean, rather than being content with what God has provided for them, they go into debt, they live in financial bondage that drains the joy out of every waking moment, all in order to impress others. And impress others with what? Our bank owns stuff. You know, you like my car. The bank owes it, but how do you like it? Aren't you impressed? Can you see why we struggle being generous with our money? Why we get upset with pastors who talk about money? Because you see, to let go of our money is to let go of that which defines our significance. And Gerald Mann asks, can you be irrespective of what you have? Do you have to have in order to be somebody? If you lost everything, including your money, your trophies, your degrees, your possessions, even your job, could you still be somebody? In other words, what's the source of your identity? Is it God the creator? Or is it fundamentally the things that he created? And this is why Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. You have to make a choice because the way you live your life will be radically impacted by the God in whom you trust. You see, if you put your trust in Jesus, then your heart will be attached to him, not to the stuff of this world, not to the degrees, to the position. It's going to be attached to him. Your identity, your definition of success will come from him. And consequently, you will see the temporary nature of money. You will see the temporary nature of earthly possessions and you'll be able to hold them loosely. You'll see them for what they really are. 
good things, but not something you can rest your eternity on. And that will put you on a path that will lead to financial freedom and financial simplicity. So how do we know if our trust is in God or if it's in some earthly idol, some earthly treasure? Well, here are a few questions that will help serve as sort of a treasure test. The first one is, what is the source of your greatest joy and delight? I want to encourage you, by the way, to really reflect on these questions this week. But what is the source of your greatest joy and delight? There are many things that we delight in in this life, like our loved ones, our work, our money and possessions, and there's nothing wrong with that. Again, I want to be very clear that there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with striving to make your business thrive. Work was God's idea. He wired us up. He gifted us to work. And we do something very God-like when we work. His concern is that we not make work our God. That we not make it the source of our identity and consequently invest so much of our time working that we neglect our relationship with Him and also with our loved ones and friends. Neither am I suggesting it's wrong to make money. Everything we have, God owns. Amen? And He gives it to us freely. He wants us to enjoy it fully. It's a gift from Him. And Jesus never said that earthly treasures are wrong in themselves. He said they're dangerous. Because as I've already explained, they might actually cause us to sell out for something that doesn't last. And so if you want to know if any of these is an idol in your life, ask yourself, am I holding my loved ones, my work, my money, and possessions? Am I holding these things with an open hand? And if you're saying, God, you can have anything but this, then whatever this is, that's an idol in your life. Question number two. What do you worry about? Jesus talked about this in verse 25. What's causing you the most anxiety these days? What fears are you struggling with? Trace your fears and anxiety to its source and you may find that your trust is in a counterfeit God rather than our eternal God. The third question is this. Where do you resist obeying God's word? We know the scriptures are true. But are there passages of the Bible that we avoid reading? Not because they're difficult to understand, but they're actually very clear to understand. But you see, they threaten our lifestyle. They th threaten our financial security, the level of our generosity, and we just don't want to go there. 
And so this might very well reveal an idol in our lives. I'm always amazed at how some Christians will debate certain doctrines of Scripture and even break fellowship with other Christians over some of those doctrines. And yet those same Christians completely gloss over, ignore other passages that call us to radical obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, if we become aware of an idol in our lives, if we want to find rest for our souls, if we want God's very best for us financially and otherwise, then what Jesus is getting at here in verse 24 is, we have a decision to make. In whom will I trust? The second principle for simplifying your finances is to focus on the eternal things of God. Look at verse 22. We're kind of backing up from the key verse now. We're backing up to verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now Jesus uses our physical vision here as a metaphor of spiritual vision. He's saying what you treasure in this life and how content you are in this life depends in large part on how clearly you see this life through the eyes of God, from God's perspective rather than from your own earthly limited perspective. You see, if you believe this life is all that there is, in other words, you know, we die, it's over, it's done, your candle goes out. If you believe that that's the case, then how you invest your time and your abilities and your money is going to be significantly different, most likely anyways, from the person who believes that our time on, her, on earth here is, is really only the warm-up. A warm-up to the main event. That life goes on forever with God. Into eternity. In verse 19, let's back up a little further. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's saying, don't stockpile a lot of stuff here on earth. Don't place your hope in it or define your significance on the basis of what you have or don't have. Because it won't last. Chances are it's going to rot or it's going to rust or it's going to get ripped off by somebody. Or as Val articulated so well earlier, you're going to leave it all behind when you die. Now, we understand that principle. The problem is we live in a world that seeks to convince us otherwise. That seeks to convince us that this is our eternal home. This is it. And as a result, we're constantly bombarded with advertising that purposefully seeks to create discontentment and dissatisfaction within us playing on our fears and on our greed, 
suggesting that we'll never be desirable without a certain brand of clothes or happy without a certain expensive toy or without a certain position. Now, our desires are not wrong. In fact, our desires come from God. The problem is, is that sin or Satan or our culture distorts or perverts our desires. Advertisers know that if our desires are stimulated in the right way, our appetite for more is engaged. Our brain starts lying to us in a weird kind of way. In fact, our brain can become focused on one thing and having that one thing can become so obsessive to us that everything else actually begins to fade away in in significance. Which explains why we drive away from a car dealership after looking at this particular car and we are obsessed for days with nothing else but that one thought, I have to have that car. We're driving down the road and we see every car that reminds us of that car. Our brain's just dialed in. It also explains why your teenager says, Mom, if my boyfriend breaks up with me or if I can't go to that party, I'll just die. Nothing else matters. We're dialed in. This is it. Now, the reality is our appetites are never fully satisfied. And if we don't get them under control, they will slowly wreak havoc in our lives. Financially, they will cause our yearning to exceed our earning and take us down a path that leads to serious debt and financial bondage and all of the anxiety and emotional feelings associated with it. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul gives us this warning. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And Paul says this is serious stuff. Harmful, out-of-control desires can wreak havoc in your life and even lead to ruin and destruction unless we begin to say no to our desire for more. So how do we, in practical terms, say enough in a world that tries to convince us at every turn that we are dissatisfied and that we need more? Well, Jesus teaches here the answer is having a singular, eternal focus. Keeping your eyes on Jesus and on his kingdom mission. Now again, this brings us back to that one key question that we keep having to go back to and settle. And that is, for me to live is what? You see, if for me to live is me well, then I'm not going to take Jesus' teaching seriously at all. Why should I? If for me to live is me, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry and party at all costs because this life is all that there is. And then we die. That's what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ is still in the grave, we may as well eat and drink and party because 
we die. But you see, then Paul went on to say, but Christ is indeed raised from the dead. Amen? That changes everything. And if it's really changed you, and you've come to that place, and you've said, for me to live is Christ, and you really mean that, then you're going to set your eyes and your sights on him. You're going to set your sights on eternal things rather than just on the temporary lesser things. Having a singular eternal focus that Jesus talks about here involves reminding yourselves often of the day that you stood at the deathbed of someone who had everything except a faith in God. And how you realized in that moment that immortality is not found in the building of an empire. Or by having your name etched on a trophy or a building. Or your picture being on the cover of a national magazine. Because empires fall. Buildings collapse. And the famous are eventually forgotten. Having a singular eternal focus involves reminding yourself of the day that you watched on television the tragic shooting of 20 children in Newtown, Connecticut. And the dozens and dozens and dozens of children and youth and young adults who have been killed since in similar fashion. Or the day that you watched on television the collapse of the financial markets in 2008 and it looks like we're entering into another, another one of those. And as you reflect on all of that, you realize for the first time perhaps that true safety and security cannot be found on this planet. But can only be found ultimately in God. In Philippians 4.8, the Apostle Paul says he's learned to be content by having a singular focus. He talks about focusing on what's true and what's noble, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And when Paul says he has learned to be content by intentionally thinking about these things... The implication is he intentionally sought not to expose his mind to anything that had the potential to lead to ruin, including the cult of more, more stuff, more security, more status. And so practically, having a singular eternal focus means learning to be content with what you have by shopping only to get what you need. When my wife heard me say that, she said, you know, it's easy for you to say that because you don't like shopping. <laughs> Which reminds me, you know, someone in the last service asked me whether my tie was from the 70s. <clears throat> whether I was using it as an object lesson, not keeping up with the fashions. <clears throat> and she was very, very nice, uh, and I appreciated the sermon, uh, you know, and all the rest of it, but she was serious. And, uh, and so I said, no, I, I think I purchased this thing within the last five years or so, which really surprised her. Um, and then she, she told me that she was going to buy me a new tie. <laughs> and which is great, because as I said, I hate shopping, you know, it's true. 
And, uh, you know, I hate shopping. And if others feel impelled to update my wardrobe, I mean, that's awesome. That's, that's cool. <laughs> In fact, you know, it wasn't until after she left, you know, I thought, man, you know, I should have mentioned she may want to update my suit as well, you know, <laughs> you know, to tie in with the tie she's going to buy me. You know, but anyways, it's a great little story, but I digress. My point is one practical way to keep an eternal singular focus is to shop only when you know what it is you need and then go and get it. Having a singular eternal focus means avoiding the comparison trap. The 10th commandment says we are not to covet or lust after what others have. Covetousness, if you think about it, is the exact opposite of contentment. And if we are constantly comparing our lot in life with others, and by that I don't just mean what we have, but you know, our, our position in the workplace, and, and you could name so many other things. If we're always comparing our lot in life with other people, we will truly be miserable people. Most people aren't discontent because they have too little, but because they believe they don't have as much as other people do. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. What a graphic picture. Be aware especially of the influence of your small group of friends in this area. If there's a lot of talk when you get together about, you know, money people are making or vacations people are planning or larger homes, newer vehicles, the latest toys that people are buying, realize that you're in an environment that has a great capacity to breed discontentment in you. Just be alert to that. Matthew 6, Jesus challenges us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to us as well. In other words, all the things that we need, not want, but need, and often worry about, will be provided in his way and in his time. He challenges us to keep our spiritual eyes focused on what really matters to God on eternal things, the things that break the heart of God. And I bring that to your attention because practically that means instead of always talking with your close friends about lesser things, about new products and recent purchases, consider challenging your friends and family to becoming more aware of the needs of those in our city. And not just financial needs, though that's important, but also the spiritual needs of children and youth and adults that are all around us, headed for a Christless eternity. Begin to talk about some of that. Begin to talk about the needs that are out there in our world. And together ask God, what would he have you together do about it? When tempted to pay out for yet another $300 to 
upgrade a device that you really don't need. Jesus asks us to have a singular eternal focus by reflecting first on the fact that 26,000 children die every day either for, for, from starvation or lack of medicine. 26,000 a day. And realize that the $300 that you're thinking of spending on a device that you really don't need would take care of all the needs of one of those children for a full year. All that to say, having a singular eternal focus means we align our thoughts and our lives with those things that Jesus is passionate about and those things that break his heart. It means we begin to find ways to deliberately unplug ourselves from the cult of more by canceling catalogs and monitoring the impact that television is having on our desire to acquire. Skipping the home show and the car show and all the other shows that make us want what we really don't need. Things that not only put us in debt, into financial bondage, but prevent us from living simply so that others can simply live. To put it simply, having a singular eternal focus means at the end of the day you agree with King David who said in, a, uh, in Psalm 103, my God satisfies. At the end of the day, he's all I need. He satisfies. I want to close by challenging you with two praiseworthy thoughts that will not only help you learn to be content, but will simplify your life and your finances. The first is this. Love people over things. Talked about this last time, but this is so important. There are only two things that you can bring with you to heaven. Only two. And that is your relationship or your friendship with Jesus and those people that you've introduced to Jesus. That's it. Your friendship with Jesus and those you introduce to Jesus. That's all you can take to heaven with you. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. And then think about what it is you're giving your life to. All our stuff, our trophies, our degrees, our achievements, they're all going to burn one day. And so value your relationships more than your stuff or your achievements. One author says, when I have asked people for their fondest or their greatest memory in life, I can't remember a time someone mentioned a promotion or some possession that they purchased. What I heard again and again was a memory connected to a relationship of some kind or another. When I asked about their greatest regrets, most often I heard people say they wish they'd invested more time with their loved ones and friends. 
And I draw that to our attention because if the quality of our relationship with God and with others is what is going to matter most to God and also to us in the end, then why are we fretting so, trying to attain all of the symbols of success in this life? Why are we losing sleep worrying about our stuff? Why are we going into debt trying to impress others with our purchases? I mean, do you realize that you can create memorable relational moments with those you love and care about in a one-bedroom apartment as easily as in a 10-bedroom mansion at a resort? Friends, contentment comes to those who think about these things. Those who, as Jesus taught here, have a singular eternal focus and decide to love people over things. Secondly, seek to please Jesus rather than trying to impress others. Some of you have all that you need and you're still not content. You are blessed beyond measure and you don't even realize it. People look at your life and they go, oh, I wish I was blessed the way that person is. Amazing family, blah, blah, blah. All the things. They're sitting there admiring and wishing they had what you have. And you're not content because you're over here looking and saying, you know what, I still haven't made it in the, in the corporate ladder where I want to go. I'm still not happy. Or I still don't have enough money in the bank for where I'm going. You know, I'm not happy. And you know, the primary reason that's behind all that is we're still trying to prove ourselves. Maybe we're still trying to prove that we're worthwhile to our father. Our father may have died already. We're still trying to prove something to him. And as a result, we get our ego gratification from being on top, from being one up on others. And at the same time, we're so easily defeated. We grow so insecure when others seem to be more successful than we are. Somewhere along the way, friends, we need to ask ourselves, who am I trying to impress? Am I so insecure that I feel worthwhile only when I make it to the top? When I feel worthwhile only when I'm more successful or more effective than that other person? You know, it's a great day when we quit competing with other people. I love the story of the young boy who said to another boy what boys will typically say to each other. The little guy said, my dad can whoop your dad. The little guy shrugged it off and walked away saying, big deal, my mom can whoop my dad. It's a great day when we stop trying to impress other people, when we stop competing with other people, and instead focus on trusting and pleasing Jesus. Friends, that's the secret. 
not only learning to be content, but finding freedom and simplicity in your finances by living first and foremost for Jesus. It's falling back, as it were, into the arms of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm satisfied. In you, I have all that I need. Next week, we'll talk about practical ways we can live more simply. Would you stand for closing prayer? So I'm going to ask you to open your hands to the Lord again. And just say, Jesus, what are you saying to me right now? And then that second question, Lord, what is it you want me to do about what I hear you saying? You take a moment and just reflect on that with the Lord right now. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your son Jesus and his profound teaching here in Matthew 6. I pray, Lord, for all those who have just now fallen back into your arms and have said, Jesus, I'm satisfied. In you, I have all that I need. I pray for those, Lord, who today just came to that place of saying, for me to live is Christ. You're more than enough, Lord Jesus. I'd rather have you than anything. Bless them, Lord, for their obedience. Bless them for their act of surrender. Bless them for committing to having a singular eternal focus. And Lord, on their behalf, we pray that you would show them what it means to live all out for you. That you would just keep them close. And Lord, that they would keep their ears attuned to your spirit. They'd be in the word. They'd be listening to those whispers that you give from time to time. And they would follow you in obedience. Guide them, Lord, and help them as they realign their financial priorities and budgets with the principles that you've laid out in the scriptures. And as they do, Lord, I pray that they would experience your peace and contentment in a deeper and a richer way that they ever have. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 